0: years ago now, uh, back in January of 2020, just before this weird event called COVID ruptured the world, uh, Danny and I were actually on planes traveling to and from Angola, which is where his family is from. His family still lives there. And um, Angola is, if you're unfamiliar, Angola is a country on the continent of Africa on the southwest coast. And so just beneath Angola actually is a country called Namibia. And on the northernmost end of Namibia, there's a park, a wild game park, called Etosha, where a lot of tourists will go. And in fact, every time we go to Angola, it's a must. But at some point, we have to go to Etosha. Well, on this one trip, January 2020, this one trip, um, Danny and I ended up being in Namibia for a couple days on our own at the tail end of our trip, because we always fly out of Windhoek, that capital city there. And we decided to go to a rhino park. So this very rich individual had decided to buy a giant acreage of land on the northern end of of Vintuk, the city of Vintuk, and uh, essentially house rhinos there to to breed and nurture them to help protect the population. So we we go to this place and a a guide ushers us, along with a bunch of other tourists, into a big open-air jeep, this giant safari-type vehicle and starts driving around and sharing with us some stories about how the park got started and how many animals were there. There's giraffes and antelope and along with the rhinos. Well, at one point, as we're driving along, we stop at this one part where, about 100 meters from us, there's this big group of rhinos. And the guide steps out of the vehicle with this big bucket with grain in it, and she goes alongside and she dumps it out and gives this little sort of like cat call out to the rhinos. Well. This one rhino, giant, pokes her head up and starts galloping over. And all of us, you know, suddenly our hearts are stopped (laughs) pounding as this giant prehistoric-like creature is galloping towards the vehicle. But as she nears the pile of grain, she slows down and then just slowly starts munching on the grain, like literally right beside the jeep. The guide, of course, very calm. She knows what she's doing. She decides, oh, we actually have a video of this. Can we, can we play the video? Oh, it's not gonna play? Oh, it's too bad. Shoot, you can, it's okay, you can keep the picture up. <laughs> um, I, I did have a video of like slow motion, this rhino like galloping <laughs> towards the vehicle, um, but that's okay. Picture's good enough. Anyway, um, we were, this was relatively, I mean, cameras always make it a little further away, but we were about 10 feet away from this rhino. And as the guide is coming back into the vehicle, I kid you not. So there was four levels of rows in this vehicle, and in the back row, which was a little more elevated, suddenly a tourist, a young woman, jumps out of the vehicle to land about 10 feet away from this rhino to take a picture. And not with like a nice fancy camera with like a two-foot lens on it. No, with her iPhone. So all of us are sitting there in the vehicle with like through gritted teeth, like quietly yelling at her, like get back in the car. like, what are you doing? But then the guide did something really interesting. So she quieted the rest of us down and then she very calmly but firmly said to this young woman, excuse me, miss, but the rhino does not know your voice and so she might charge you. The rhino only knows my voice, and you might scare her if you come too close. See, rhinos actually have really poor vision. It's one of their greatest weaknesses. And so they get startled really easily. They get spooked really easily. And so in a really interesting way, this guide was speaking very calmly but firmly and loudly enough so that the rhino would mostly hear her voice over the rest of us and also then try to coax the tourist to come back in. It was something that I couldn't help but remember as I read through the passage for this morning, because this isn't just the case for rhinos. There's a significant reason, or many reasons actually, why we as children of God have have had to grow accustomed to the idea of being called sheep in Scripture. Because like the rhino, sheep know their guide or their shepherd's voice, And what we'll read in the Gospel of John this morning is that Jesus is very intentional about highlighting whose voice we are supposed to be listening to. So let's open up the Gospel of John. We're going to read in chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting at verse 1 and going to verse 18. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, the words will also be up on the screen. Just give a couple seconds for you to turn there. Hmm. All right. John chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters, <clears throat> excuse me, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also." They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. All right, just by way of reminder, again, we are in a series right now on the names of Jesus. So we're looking at names that are given to Jesus, either from himself or by the other biblical authors, that speak to who he is and the teaching then that follows um, of that name. Well, this this passage in particular might feel a bit familiar to you, and that's because we actually touched on this theme not too long ago back in our Jeremiah series when we looked at Jeremiah chapter 23, where God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaks of himself as a shepherd. And what Jesus is doing here in this passage is in fact actually connecting our brains back to those words in Jeremiah and to that metaphor of God as a shepherd like what we see in Psalm 23, which we read earlier. Jesus is using a very common image here that the common people of Israel would have understood. But he's speaking here, if you'll have noticed in chapter 1 or verse 1, he's speaking here specifically to the Pharisees ironically, to the ones who probably knew the least about shepherding, other than it being a part of their culture. Why? Well, because shepherding was a very lowly job, and these Pharisees were known for living a much more affluent lifestyle. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 20. Beware of the teachers of the law, he says, i.e., the Pharisees. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour women's houses, widows' houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Why? Well, because they are leading by example in a way that actually leads people away from the character and the posture of God. These men are supposed to be leading the people humbly and meekly into the presence of God, leading the sheep into green pastures. But instead, as Jesus highlights, they're finding shortcuts or or their own ways of jumping the fence and taking from the sheep what only nourishes their own pride and egos. It's why Jesus says in verse 1, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Now, what exactly the gate is hasn't yet been revealed. But the Pharisees, Jesus is saying, weren't even coming close to the gate. They were finding all sorts of religious and, and legal mechanisms for getting out of the sheep what they wanted because their own ideas and teachings had so skewed their minds that they'd completely lost sight of not only God's character, but the role that they were supposed to play as leaders of Israel. The true shepherd, says Jesus, calls his sheep by name and leads them out. He is able to lead them out because they know his voice. And they won't recognize anyone else. Remember, Jesus is talking to you, the Pharisees. They are not going to recognize a stranger's voice. In other words, he's saying to the Pharisees, you all have become strangers to these people because you're not articulating the voice of God. And so they don't recognize God's voice because you're not articulating it. Your voice is not God's voice. And the true children of God, in other words, will recognize the shepherd's voice. Just like a child will always recognize their parent's voice. The sheep will always know their shepherd's voice. And what Jesus does here is gradually reveal how he now fits into this analogy. Because remember, anytime a Jew would have used this metaphor or, or seen this metaphor used, their minds would have immediately connected it to Yahweh, the God of Israel, because it's all over the Old Covenant Scriptures. Look at Psalm 23. Again, the Lord is my shepherd. It's right there. I lack nothing. Psalm 80, hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Psalm 95, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And then in a couple of the prophets, Isaiah, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And in Ezekiel, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. See, this is why every leader in Israel, from Moses all the way through the kings, was also called a shepherd. The leaders were meant to lead and guide and care for the people like God did. They were supposed to image God. All of them were meant to image God, but the leaders were meant to image God in this role in a really special way. Even Moses' great prayer in Numbers 27 was that the God who gives breath to all living things would appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them like shepherd language, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Now, of course, if you know your scriptures, the immediate answer to this prayer was Joshua. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer is Jesus. And if you're familiar with this, Jesus is actually the Greek name for Joshua. There's a connection here. Jesus had looked on the crowds, as we read elsewhere in the Gospels, he had looked on on the crowds around him and noticed that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Exactly what Moses prayed for wouldn't happen, in fact, did happen. So now, Jesus begins to reveal to these Pharisees and to the crowds around who he is and why his voice is the one to pay attention to. First, in verse 7, Jesus reveals that he is, in fact, the gate that he was talking about. The pathway, the the route, the opening by which the sheep can come in and out and be saved. Verse 9, I am the gate, he says. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And not just is Jesus the gate, but verse 11, he adds, I am also the good shepherd. Massive! implications here and Jesus could have said so much more about this but he didn't what does he do what does he immediately do he outlines very briefly what a true shepherd does for the sheep if in fact the reality here is that the role of the shepherd was actually quite simple the good shepherd he said lays down his life for the sheep Now, our brains will immediately go to how Jesus, in fact, laid his own life down for the sheep. But for a couple minutes here, let's just take a few moments to be reminded that that was actually the job of a shepherd. In many ways, you had to lay your own life down for the sheep because you had to do anything you could to protect the flock. A shepherd had to be willing to put themselves in danger to protect the sheep. Biblical scholar William Barclay explains that um, although sheep would usually be enclosed at nighttime into pens or sheepfolds, often, especially during the warm season, if they were out in the hills, the flocks didn't actually return to the villages. So at nighttime, instead, they were collected into sheepfolds um, up in the hills. And these sheepfolds were open spaces that had a, a sort of a brick wall around, um, but it included an opening by which the sheep could come in and out. So this, this fold, this pen, this opening didn't have a door or a gate. What happened then was that the shepherd would actually lay himself down across the opening so that the sheep would have to get over his body to actually get out. So it kept the sheep protected in, and then of course, also his body served as a sort of shield or protector for keeping the dangerous things out. This is one of the reasons why the shepherds were never, ever, at any point in time, off duty. Even out in the fields, they were constantly alert. Their sheep were bound to wander, there were no protective walls usually around them. The shepherd always had to be watching. As Barclay puts it, the shepherd was sleepless, farsighted, weather-beaten, leaning on his staff and looking over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart, and every one of them called by name. And this is actually a very common thing still in some countries in the world, for sheep to actually be called by name. It was and still is something that, real, that shepherds do, to name their sheep and for the sheep to so clearly know their shepherd's voice and callings that they will actually follow him anywhere. Scholar and professor Gary Burge writes about how Arab shepherds, specifically, are well known for knowing their sheep personally. During the Palestinian uprising in the the late 1980s, he writes, the Israeli army decided to punish a village near Bethlehem for not paying its taxes, And the officer in command ended up rounding up all of the village sheep, or all of the village animals, everyone, and placed them in a large barbed wire fence. Well, later in the week, he was approached by a woman who begged him to release her flock because her husband had died and her sheep were her only source of income. Well, the officer pointed at this giant pen with hundreds of animals in it, different types of animals, and laughed at her, saying there's no way you're going to find your sheep in this giant mess of, of animals, but then she asked him that if she could, in fact, separate out her flock, would he let her take them? Well, he agreed. Sure, you can try. He led her to the gate, he opened the gate, and then her son, who was with her, took out this little reed flute and started playing a very simple tune on it over and over, and then he slowly started walking away, And one by one, 25 sheep popped their heads up and then followed out like magic. (laughs) And they all went home. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus in verse 4, 14. Again, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And then he adds this in verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Just think about that for a second. The sheep know me, and I know my sheep, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That's the kind of intimacy and relationship that we're talking about here. And of course, as we know, it wasn't just the faithful Israelites who were called into this, but also people from every nation. It's the fulfillment of the call of Abraham that we see in Genesis 12, that all peoples on earth would be blessed through Jesus. All peoples. And he says here, I must bring them also. I must bring them also. Why? Because in Jesus we see the same love for the sheep that we saw from Yahweh in Jeremiah 23. A sense of ownership, of care, of of attentiveness, of compassion. This is my pasture, he said in Jeremiah 23. This is my pasture. And he loves the sheep of his pasture. He loves them. And he will, Jesus, will enable this this little flock, which has now turned into a rather large flock, to experience the fullness of his love and mercy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's what he's about. Because... Like a shepherd, he too will lay his own body down. That's what he will do for his sheep. This is why Jesus takes so much time in this passage, which at times sounds repetitive, but he takes so much time on this to repeat himself and to build on this analogy in this conversation with the Pharisees. Because the people need to understand That it's not the voice of the Pharisees that they should be listening to, because the Pharisees have led them astray. It's His voice that they are to be listening for. They need to know their shepherd's voice. Because the truth of the matter is that the voices of the Pharisees were keeping the Israelites, if we can use the analogy, trapped in an enclosed pen and never enabling them to actually experience the life and the joy and the grace of God. They weren't being allowed to experience those things. See, what's often true, or, well, typical, about what we can call religion, and the reason why it often falls under such criticism, especially in our modern age, is that it presents itself as being bound by certain rules or law. It's, it's all about order and structure and, and staying within the boundary lines, which for some feels very stifling and restrictive. It's, it's the danger of being married to the boundaries rather than being married to the person who put those boundaries in place. Because, see, if we focus on the walls, if we focus on the boundaries of the walls, we have this natural inclination to either want to tear them down in frustration or to only build them up higher out of angst and a sense of security. We have a natural human inclination to do that whenever boundaries are placed around us. We either get mad at them and want to get rid of them, or we want to build them up higher, because it gives us an added sense of security. Hear me out, though. Boundaries are not a bad thing. They're actually a really good thing. But the way that the Pharisees were leading the people was so focused on the strength and the height of these boundaries that it restricted them from ever experiencing or tasting the freedom of God's grace that Jesus speaks of. And it, takes a, it really does take a level of spiritual maturity okay, to be able to hold these things together to know that there are good boundaries in place, but that grace doesn't necessarily mean we can just go and do whatever we want. Our task is to follow and listen for the voice of our shepherd. In other words, security, this idea of security and safety is not based on the height of the enclosure around us, but in proximity to the shepherd. Okay, let me say that again. Our sense of safety and security is not based on how high the walls are around us, but rather in how close we are to our shepherd. Scholar F.F. Bruce says this, which I found really insightful. When the people of Christ have forgotten this and tried to secure unity or safety by building walls around themselves, the results have not been encouraging. The walls have either been so comprehensive as to enclose a number of wolves along with the sheep, with disastrous consequences for the sheep, or they've been so restrictive as to exclude more sheep than they enclose. I recently read a BBC article on a preacher evangelist in the 80s and 90s who was a leader of a Christian cult called The Truth. Um, a secretive and exclusive organization, as they tend to be. And it was a man who had abused a number of people and was seeking reparations for it. Um, and every time it comes up in the news, I just think, oh, not again. <laughs> but this is the stuff that sells, right? It's any sort of leader, whether it's a religious leader, or a politician, or a celebrity, somebody who has had some great moral failure, right? It's so discouraging. But two things in this passage... Offer me some consolation when I read these kinds of articles, because they're not going to go away. Let's be true. First is that based on how Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees, it seems clear that only the Lord really knows how to show the appropriate measure of anger towards these kinds of things when would-be leaders misuse and mislead the sheep who are supposed to be under their care. And then secondly, it's very clear that when leaders aren't listening to their shepherd's voice, there is a capacity for disastrous consequences. Note that in verse 6, if you'll remember, the Pharisees do not actually understand what Jesus is telling them. So what seems to go hand in hand with poor leadership then is a kind of ignorance regarding the voice and the wisdom of Jesus. And... I know it's very easy in, in when we read passages like this, and it, re- it should be. For any of us who are leaders in the church, this should humble us. But honestly, when we, when we read texts like this, all of us should be humbled by it and recognize our own frailty as human beings. We're equated to sheep, okay? So that should already humble us a little bit, Right? Like sheep, we too are very timid and stubborn creatures. Like sheep, we refuse to relax until we know we're safe and free from danger and conflict. Like sheep, we are also creatures of habit. We will run the same routes back and forth, back and forth, out of habit until we make ruts in the ground, which is what sheep do. I mean, this is what David would have been thinking of when he mentioned in Psalm 23, when he talked about being led down the right paths rather than down paths of habit. We're creatures of habit, but it takes a level of spiritual maturity and ingraining ourselves in the teachings of Jesus to know that it is actually not ourselves who know what those right paths are, but it is our shepherd who can deem the right paths for us. Barclay also mentions that if a shepherd at that time wanted to call back one of his wandering sheep, since there weren't any sheepdogs, of course, back then, he would fit a stone into his sling, and they had such great accuracy that they could actually throw the sling or throw the stone, and the stone would land right in front of the sheep's nose as a warning to turn around and come back. They could also, of course, use the, the crook of their rod to, to to pull the sheep back in line if the sheep started to wander. Because if you've ever seen sheep following their shepherd, they're pretty straight. Like the lines are pretty straight. It's pretty incredible. And the shepherd will know right away if, if there's a sheep going out of line. All that to say, we too have to be willing to be corrected by the voice of Christ, because we are all prone to wander. We sang that earlier in the service. We're all prone to wander. And Therefore, we need to be willing to be corrected and pulled back in by the crook of our shepherd who knows best. If we aren't paying attention and listening for the voice of our shepherd, we won't notice when his correction comes. It's why we bother to talk about Jesus' teachings at all and, and remind ourselves of these similar themes over and over year after year because we are so forgetful. And we need to be reminded constantly that this is what his voice sounds like. Do we know the voice of our shepherd? As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd and overseer of our souls. The gentle guide, calmly yet firmly asking the wayward tourist to come back into the vehicle. The humble servant carrying the wandering lamb on his shoulders. The sacrificial guardian using his own body as a shield and a protection. The faithful shepherd who watches over and keeps every single one of his sheep. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in the 1800s, once said this You may fear that the Lord has passed you by, but it is not so. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made, or the only saint he ever loved, or perhaps the only sheep he's ever kept. As a friend said to me this week, the good shepherd cares for you because you are his. There will never be a time when he will say, you're not worth it. He is the shepherd who comes to lay himself down so that we can have life and have it to the full. And I'm sorry, I couldn't think of a way to describe this. I really wanted to end on this note of having life to the full, and I just couldn't find an appropriate way to describe this other than to share one more brief story. Years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I was living in London, and a housemate and I decided to spend a weekend wandering around the southeast or the southwest coast of Wales. And we had been encouraged by a woman that we had randomly met on the tube on the subway to check out a magical place, she called it, a magical place called Rassili, which was about an hour's bus ride from Swansea, one of the major cities in Wales. Well, we didn't know what to expect, but when the bus stopped with just the two of us left on it, we stepped out into a town of maybe 30 people where a main path led toward a a large gate on a hill. And as we walked up to the gate, it was just breathtaking. Off to the right, there was huge cliffs leading down to a white sand beach, probably stretching for about a half a kilometer. And then on the left side, there were rolling hills leading down to the coast, where a bunch of islands, and in high tide especially, would, were, were popping out of the water like a little sea creature. And then at the end, there was a really big one. It really was quite magical. The coloring was beautiful because the sun was just about to set. There was kind of a low mist hanging around. Literally, as I was walking up to this giant gate, I felt like I was going into heaven. It was just that one of those moments. You don't have them very often, but one of those moments. Well, as we passed through the gate, off to the right, on the rocky, uneven pastures, there were sheep on their own. There was no sight of a shepherd but at no point did the sheep give any indication that they were fearful or worried or disturbed. They were completely safe. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What greater fullness could there be than being at rest in the green pastures of our shepherd, knowing that his presence is near and that we have nothing to be afraid of? Would you pray with me? Living God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us, knowing, Lord, that these words weren't originally written down necessarily to us, but they certainly are for us. And we ask that your living word now would embed your truths into our hearts and into our minds and into our souls. By your spirit, may these words sink deeply And may your living word be active among us, Lord, speaking to us whatever it is this morning that we need to hear. Humble us, Father, and enable us to image you in the way that you care for your sheep. May we know that you are our good shepherd who watches over us. And may we hear your voice. We pray this all in your name. Amen.